If you're new with us, uh, we're going through the book of Daniel. We, we love to just go verse by book, verse through books of the Bible, and, and we kind of turn the corner here in terms of, of the genre of literature in the book, and we turn into this uh, section of apocalyptic uh, prophetic literature in Daniel. So let's pray because we obviously need a lot of help here. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that it is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. And we pray that today you would do that work of teaching and correcting, do the work of encouraging your saints as we consider the fact that our God reigns over human history. And may that, that truth today uh, bring comfort uh, to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, this is the time of year in which uh, many of us, probably in just a few hours, will see a lot of strange-looking individuals walking down the street uh, asking us for candy. Some have ventured already into haunted houses, looking at uh, strange-looking uh, creatures. And I read recently where in eastern Kentucky there's actually a haunted double-wide trailer uh, for, for you to, uh, to visit. And it's in Johns Creek, uh, if you're interested. And I can only imagine what one would see in uh, that haunted double-wide trailer. And this passage has a bit of a Halloween feel to it. right? We have these four strange-looking beasts that are presented before us in this remarkable book of the Bible. But they're not costumes. It's not, uh, it's not child's play. It's, it's symbolic of real kings and kingdoms throughout history. Now, it's uh, common today for us to use the term beast or beastly in a positive way. Right? We see when a guy's working out and lifting a lot of weights, we'll say, well, that guy's a beast. Or if uh, a lady is producing great results in the office, she's beastly. But Daniel is showing us this beastly history, and it's not a compliment to these particular rulers and kings. These beasts devour and they oppress God's people. They're grotesque creatures that symbolize for us rulers and empires throughout various eras of history. And we look at it today um, with the benefit of hindsight, as much of what Daniel is foretelling it has now been, I think, uh, become history for us, but he's also telling of some stuff that is still future for us. So we have the benefit of hindsight, and we also have the benefit of the whole Bible to help us to understand things like the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And as we consider the strangeness of, of Daniel 7, what we find is really a word of comfort and hope. As we've been saying, this book was written uh, to exiles in order to, to encourage them in their troubled time. And even though the genre of literature has now changed from narrative, we've been reading mainly about court stories, to apocalyptic, the message of Daniel is still the same. Our God reigns, our God wins, and his people shall receive a kingdom that will have no end. These, these beastie boys have their moment of glory. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's a hip-hop reference if you don't know. Uh, uh, but, but their glory is fading. It's fleeting. And the one who has sovereign control over everything is the Ancient of Days. And these beasts are not uh, comparable to the Son of Man. And what we find that wasn't read yet down in verses 15 to the end of the chapter is a threefold uh, repetition that the saints shall receive an everlasting kingdom. Things will be hard for God's people all throughout history. But in the end, God will have the last word and we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, as we turn the corner here to chapter 7, I, I probably should say just a brief word about apocalyptic literature for us as we'll be looking at it for weeks ahead. 
Uh, up to this point, as I've said, we've lo- been looking at mainly narrative literature, uh, but now we're reading apocalyptic literature. The word apocalyptic is a fancy word that means an unveiling, a revealing. And God uses apocalyptic literature to communicate certain things that cannot be expressed inside the normal means of language. Things are so majestic and they're so incredible that uh, it, it's, it's more fitting to use symbolism and images and pictures. Like this is a series of pictures. So kids, you can have a lot of pictures today and you will for the next several weeks. We often say that a picture is worth a thousand words. And as you read through this section of Daniel, you see verbs like I saw, I watched, I, I looked. And so if you're perhaps a video gamer or you like sci-fi, you can probably do pretty well with this literature. As Daniel is doing an unveiling and, and what's happening is the curtain is being uh, uh, pulled open so that we can see who is behind history, who's over the world. We get to see the spiritual conflict that often lies uh, uh, apart from our eye in the spiritual realms. And we see ultimately that God is on the throne and that the Son of Man's kingdom will have no end. And because of this, we can trust God in our suffering, in our exile. Now, some don't like this kind of literature because it is difficult. They choose to avoid it. But we shouldn't because it's wonderfully encouraging. We see the spiritual warfare that is behind the scenes, and we see who is really in control. And so if you're fearful about the stuff of life, this kind of literature brings us great hope, and it sustains our faith. What we want to avoid is over-interpreting apocalyptic literature, that is, trying to press every single detail into uh, a particular meaning. And so many people go all Sherlock Holmes with this stuff and, and try to uncover things that have never been discovered before. But what we want to do is, is try to look for the plain truths that are, that are being presented to us. We want to try to avoid being overly dogmatic about certain events, trying to distinguish between speculation and clear teaching. And that's not always an easy thing to do, um, but we'll try to do it together. So let's look at this text in four parts. First of all, we see four beasts and a terrifying figure. We're introduced to the story as the writer highlights Daniel's dreams and vision in verse 1. And we see immediately that this is now a flashback as the chronological sequence in Daniel has been broken. We're back to Belshazzar and his reign. As we've said before, Daniel doesn't follow a strict chronology. And as he's having this dream, he says in in verse 2, he declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Coming out of the seas is representative of chaos, instability, wickedness, Isaiah 57, but the wicked are like the tossing of the sea. The four winds representing the whole earth. And it's interesting, it's this phrase of heaven, four winds of heaven, a word about how the chaos of the world is still under the sovereign control of God. It looks like apparent chaos, but the Lord of heaven is the one who sets up kings and he puts them down. Now, these beasts. My interpretation is correct on these things, so make sure you note it. (laughs) There there is, I think, a general consensus about the beast, though you always have outliers and exceptions to this. We have the the help of the rest of Daniel to help us get 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 a grip on 
these beasts. Now, some take this, basically you got, you got about three options, I'll just give you two here. You could take these four beasts as simply language to express uh, people who will oppose God's people throughout history. So there, there is no specific individual or uh, specific kingdom uh, in play here. However, verse 17 tells us of the chapter that these four great beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth, which seems to have a le- level of specificity to it. What's more convincing that these do probably represent particular kings and kingdoms is we've already had Daniel chapter 2 presented to us. And if you recall in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue, and the statue represented, and it was clearly told to us, that it represented four successive empires, right? Now, added to that, in chapter 8, there is no speculation about, we got uh, these two other creatures, a ram and a goat, One is Greece, and we're told one is Persia. So it seems that this book tends to have these four successive empires in mind, and then it looks ahead to future opponents of God's people, often just general opponents not specified, and occasionally those that are specified. Now with all that said then, I think what we have are these four successive kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That is consistent with what we looked at in chapter 2. So these empires have a, a mascot, if you will. They have a, they're symbolized with, with a beast. And that's still true today. Russia, uh, theirs is a bear. Scotland, it's a lion. And these United States of America is an eagle, right? Ben Franklin wanted it to be a turkey. We're glad he didn't win, uh, right? So we got these beasts. They're vicious. They're oppressive. They're frightening. They assault God's people. This is a pattern in Scripture. So beast number one in verse four, we're told, is a lion with wings. This seems to represent Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, based upon, again, the, the, the context of, of Daniel. Babylon also had this as the symbol on its gates, this uh, symbol of a, of a lion. Nebuchadnezzar is likened to a lion in Jeremiah, and also to an eagle in uh, the book of Ezekiel. And there may even be an allusion here uh, of this beast to the previous section we read about when Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a beast and uh, it, its wings were torn off. So we've got this particular uh, beast mentioned to us first, this lion. Secondly, a bear. I think, again, this represents uh, Medo-Persia. Scholars uh, debate the meaning of this bear being raised up on one side. It could be on its back legs ready to attack, or maybe it means one side is stronger than the other. If that's the case, then it's probably Persia stronger than the Medes. Um, what is clear is that it's not a teddy bear, right? It's, it has ribs between its teeth. If you saw this, you would go the other direction. It devours people, and that's the point. The beast is scary. It devours people, and then we have this leopard, with four wings and four heads. Wings would obviously indicate speed, uh, four heads, knowledge, being able to look in various directions, this great speed of a leopard. If this does follow the sequence of Babylon to Persia to Greece, then this particular king in mind, and we'll see more about this next week in chapter eight, would be Alexander the Great and uh, and the Greeks. No one moved with speed like Alexander the Great. By the age of 32, he controlled Greece, Egypt, Persia, all the way to the borders of India. He had a legendary lust to rule the world. But you notice, interestingly, in verse 6, that the passive voice, dominion was given to it. This denotes divine sovereignty. This is something you won't read in the history books. 
that, that Alexander the Great was given this dominion by a sovereign God. But that's what seems to be indicated here. These kingdoms then are not accidents. They're not, they're not attributed to luck. We know that Cyrus, for example, God raised him up to rule and to allow God's people to go back into the promised land. Again, it's a little hint that'll get more clear as the, as the chapter goes on that our God is in control. The fourth one is an incomparable beast with ten horns and a little horn. And this one is the most frightening of them all. You see that in verses 7 and 8. It does not resemble any earthly creature. It has iron teeth. It's strong. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was altogether of a different nature. It had ten horns. And this beast, if my reading is uh, on point, classically has been understood to be Rome. And this would make sense because no empire had more power, more longevity, or more influence. These ten horns represents its power, but also probably multiplied strength and successive kings reigning in the same spirit of Rome. And what is said of one of these horns that comes out in verses 21 and 24 is that there's, it's unlike anything we've ever seen before. So we have the beast of all beasts that is mentioned here. Now, this may be a reference to what the Bible calls the Antichrist, read about in Revelation 13, or Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I personally think that view is correct, that this is uh, um, uh, symbolic of the, the great Antichrist. There will be, John tells us, many Antichrists, plural, and then one at the end. And so these that have gone before symbolize that same spirit. There will be others throughout the history of the church, and then there will be one uh, at the end. Others, though, see this as being a reference to an individual named Antiochus Epiphanes, who oppressed God's people in the second century unlike anyone else had ever done. I think that's him in chapter 8. That'll be the next chapter. Okay? So I hope that's all clear. Some just generalize this again and say, well, none of them stand for anyone in particular. It's simply symbolic of, of God's people being opposed. And you're sensible people. You'll have to work that out yourself. But I, 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 do, I do think the, there, there is a specificity in mind, as Daniel points to these as being four kings. The point is to see these gross and frightening creatures having ruled history at various points in time illustrating for us the doctrine of total depravity, being taught in a, an apocalyptic way, that they've become twisted and violent. Sin is ugly. History is beastly. It's scary. But even though we acknowledge the fallenness and wickedness of the, of the world, Daniel pivots to the Ancient of Days to help us receive comfort about the firm kingship of heaven. And so we shift here from these four beasts and this terrifying figure to the ancient of days. Daniel hasn't seen anything yet. He has been shaken up by the pictures of these beasts. And now it says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool and his throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. There's an abruptness to the shift here. We're being taught by, about this little horn and, and all of the, the boasts that this, uh, this little horn makes. And it's almost like Daniel pivots and says, sees God, the Ancient of Days, 
saying, don't be afraid of that big mouth. Let me tell you who really reigns. He is the ancient of days. This doesn't mean God is old. It means he's eternal. He has no point of origin. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He reigns over all the beasts of every generation. His clothing is white as snow. This speaks of his holiness and his righteousness. His hair like pure wool. Eternality. Purity. He is wise beyond comprehension. His throne was fiery flames. This speaks of God's purifying and righteous judgment. And its wills were blazing fire. There are no limitations or restrictions on his judgment. He is everywhere and he knows all. And a stream of fire issued and came out before him, speaking again of his righteous judgment and wrath. This is the picture that Daniel gets. This is the God who reigns, the God who is eternal, the God who is pure, the God who ultimately will judge. And then he sees something very encouraging. It had to be encouraging. In verse 10, a stream of fire issued, came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Thousand upon thousands served God. Remember this, Christian, when you're standing alone, you're not alone. There are millions upon millions serving our God. Surely Daniel felt alone at times in exile. But there were myriads of others who served the Lord with him. I'm reminded again of that scene of Elisha and the servant that he had with him when the Syrians were about to overtake Israel and the little servant was, was nervous, as in 2 Kings 6. And Elisha says, ah, there are more of us than them. And the guy was like, what you talking about, Willis? And, and Elisha says, Lord, open up his eyes. And he opens his eyes and he sees the host of, of the angels surrounding the Syrians, right? You see, what apocalyptic literature is doing is, is putting the veil back, helping us to be encouraged by the reality of God. And, and the angels that surround him and the glory that is his. And he says, before this ancient of days, the court is called into session. The books are opened. And the court will go in favor, as we're going to see as the text goes on, the court will go in the favor of the saints. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And the forces of darkness eventually will be destroyed forever. This is a word of, of warning and a call to repentance to those who are not yet Christians that you would trust in Jesus Christ so that you will not have to stand in dread at this judgment. It's a word of hope to Christians who are opposed and oppressed and persecuted that ultimately justice will prevail and the Ancient of Days will do his thing. This gives us sanity, this text. We can trust this God. This is the God we trust. Like the book of Revelation, all is calm in the presence of God. He's just sitting down. He's not panicking. He's not taken by surprise. He wants people in exile to know that ultimate authority does not reside in Babylon. Ultimate authority does not reside in Persia. Ultimate authority does not reside in Greece or in Rome. Ultimate power resides in the ancient of days. And it's good for us to be reminded today that ultimately, ultimate authority does not reside in Washington, D.C. It does not reside in London. It doesn't reside in Beijing or Moscow or North Korea. It belongs to the ancient of days. 
You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's what Daniel wants us to see here. Keep your eyes on him. There are beasts all around us. There's oppression. There's persecution. We have an enemy that wants to devour us, who wants to, as the text will say in just a moment, wear us out. We keep our mind on our God who reigns. And he deals with this little horn, this antichrist, immediately and decisively and easily. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and body destroyed and given over and burned with fire. No match for the Ancient of Days. He says, for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. That is to say, these empires continued to exist, but they were a shadow of their former self. So, the Ancient of Days eventually will kill the beasts. Salvation will eventually come in all its fullness. We take heart in that reality. And then Daniel sees something else, the Son of Man. Now again, as I said, we have the benefit of all of Scripture to understand these things now. And we know that there is no guessing when it comes to the Son of Man. You know, one, one may get the beasts wrong, identifying them as specific individuals, but we don't get Jesus wrong, right? Because Jesus referred to himself repeatedly as the Son of Man. This is his favorite self-designation of himself. It appears 70 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 12 times in the Gospel of John. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Jesus uses this language as well of uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. So here we're thinking on Jesus Christ, like a son of man, that is, like a human. But Jesus is not a typical human. For one, he's sinless. But he's also fully divine. And this title, Son of Man, captures his humanity and his deity. He really was human. And his earthly ministry was very unique. I love how Eugene Peterson put it in one place. The Son of Man has dinner with a prostitute, stops off for lunch with a tax collector, wastes time blessing children when there are Roman legions to be chased from the land, heals unimportant losers, and ignores high-achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees. Ultimately, Jesus, the God-man, would be hung upon a cross, would bleed, would die, would be buried in a tomb. But even though his deity was veiled in his incarnation, it was still present. He taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. He had the authority to forgive sins, and he spoke of possessing the kingdom, fully human, fully divine, the Son of Man, very God and very man. He's unlike all the other man beasts that thought they were divine, that thought they were something. Here is the glorious one. Here is the majestic one. Here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the only one who is able to stand in the presence of God and not be incinerated. He is at home in the presence of God. He belongs in the heavenly court because of who he is. And because of that, he's worthy to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages might serve him. That is to say, he is worthy of worship. And he is fulfilling the prophecies like Psalm 2. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Jesus Christ will have for himself a people, a language, a tribe, nations from the four winds, declaring his praise. This man, the Son of Man, obeyed where Adam fell. Jesus, the Son of Man, reflected the glory of God perfectly, completed his mission perfectly, and now he is high and exalted. His reign will be endless and boundless and gracious because of who he is and what he's done. And he comes with the clouds. That is, he has authority and majesty. We're taught in the Old Testament that God rides upon the clouds. And Jesus here is coming on the clouds. And the reference there, I think, is an already not yet uh, picture as he's coming to the Ancient of Days. This is an event that's already happened. Jesus' coronation. After the cross and resurrection, he ascended to the Father. As the disciples looked and said, where did he go? And Daniel 7 is the sequel to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Where did he go? He went to the Ancient of Days. He took his place as the one who completed his work. He had this holy coronation. But it also, I think, is, is pointing ahead to when the Son of Man, the, the Son of God, his glory will be finally consummated at his second coming. As the one who is seated now, who reigns now, will come again. And he has all of this authority and all of this power. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. What do we do with this? Well, if you're not a Christian, behold your Savior. This Jesus Christ, he's unlike anyone in human history. The most powerful, the elite, pale in comparison to the glory of Jesus Christ. And he came on this mission and he came for you. He came for the nations. We don't have a tribal savior. We have a global savior. He's forming a people from all over the globe. And he's done all the work for us. The son of man, Mark says, came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How different Jesus is from these man beasts. His self-emptying, his humility, his giving of himself, his thinking of others and not his own glory. And that's, that's what Jesus did to save us. And if we're Christians, let's join with the myriads in worshiping. Let's join with the myriads and realize it is not useless to serve him. Wherever he might call us. And let's remember, you know, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go make disciples. This is, this is what that's showing us. We can go to the nations, to our neighbors, with confidence. Because Jesus Christ has gone to the Ancient of Days. He sits at the Father's right hand. He really does have all authority. And if he tells us to go, then we go with confidence wherever he sends us. Well, praise God. I get excited about this. Verse 15 to 28 is the final section creatively titled Encouragement for the Saints. This is the big takeaway at the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Daniel receives these details about the vision. And the big idea is that God has won, but the war is not over. There's going to be hardship ahead of the saints. Remember, Daniel's getting this while they're returning or about to return from exile. But even though they return, the hardship is not over. There will be years and years and years God's people enduring opposition. But in the end, God will have the last word. This whole thing shakes Daniel up. You can imagine in verses 15, verse 19, verse 28, he speaks of his emotions. He was Anxious, he says in verse 15, verse 19, he wanted to know the meaning of everything. 
verse 28, my thoughts alarmed me, my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What he says in verse 18 is, again, is that God's people will receive this kingdom that will last forever. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came out, and before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Antichrist or antichrist will oppose God's people, make war on God's people. And this is going to go on for how long? Verse 22. Until. Until the ancient of days came with judgment given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the, the kingdom. Eventually, in due time, in the fullness of time, there will be no more persecution, no more opposition. The exiles will be home. The Ancient of Days will pronounce judgment on all who have opposed his people. You see, how we get in this kingdom is that we are in the king, and we're safe. If we're in the king, just as Adam, this historical man whose actions carried unique ramifications, so too Jesus, the son of man, his work brought unique benefits to those who belong to him. In other words, if we are in Jesus, we win. We win not because of who we are. We win because of who he is. We win because we're in the son of man, right? Like if the Braves end up winning the World Series... Um, I, I, I think that'll happen tonight. Um, but if we do, we'll tell people like Ed Davis here, congratulations on winning the World Series, even though we know Brother Ed has not played an inning for the Atlanta Braves. Okay? You haven't, have you, Ed? Um, the manager doesn't know he exists. Uh, but, but there is a solidarity there. There's a union there that if the Braves win, he wins, right? And because Jesus wins, guess what? We win. Even though we don't really deserve to be on the team, uh, we're not quite even bad boys, but we win because we're in the Son of Man. That's who possesses the kingdom. Not the mighty, the elite, the powerful, the intellectual, those who have earned it by their morality, but those who've humbled themselves and repented and embraced Jesus Christ as the only one who can save us. One day he'll wrap it all up. But in the meantime, Daniel tells us in verses 23 and following, hardship is coming. And he pulls back the curtain to help us see the spiritual warfare that exists behind the scenes of our lives. We often just see opposition from a human level. And what this apocalyptic literature helps us to see is that there is a warfare in the heavenly places. That, that there's an angelic world, there's a spiritual world, right? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with these spiritual powers. So he says in verse 25, the fourth beast there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, uh, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down the other three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. 
So notice the characteristics about this little horn. He speaks pompous words against God. He will persecute the saints of the Most High. And look at that language again. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. We, we have an enemy who wants to wear out God's people. And it's encouraging to know that truth. That it's not just randomly happening. There's something going on. Whenever you feel like you are being worn out in this fallen world, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a reminder that there's real opposition, spiritual opposition. And that this little horn, shall in, uh, he intends to change times and the law. That is, wants to transform society into a godless mess. And that same spirit has been at work in the world from the fall. And as a result, God's people are going to suffer. They're going to have to endure hardship. It's symbolized in the expression a time and times and half a time. <laughs> Probably haven't used that phrase before. Often, again, people really press this and they, they argue for a particular time of three and a half years and that fits their eschatology. Uh, I'm not going to, to argue for that. I think it's a more general statement about this little horn having incredible influence for a time. And when it looks like its power has reached its pinnacle times, it will be destroyed and only survive for a half a time. So great rage and great influence, and then broken. And verse 26 tells us how. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed in the end. God again has the last word. Rulers may reign for a bit. They may strut across the pages of history. But the Ancient of Days reigns over all. In verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. This is what we receive in Jesus Christ. A kingdom, the writer of Hebrews says, that cannot be shaken. What's our response to that? Well, Hebrews 12 actually tells us something very practical. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. <laughs> let us be grateful of what we've received. We will face trouble, church. We have an enemy that wants to wear us out. But God is one. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ reigns. And Christ will come again. This passage helps us to see that there is a conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Christ. But one day, those kingdoms will all fall. And that vision we see here in Daniel chapter 7 gives us hope now. This vision of the throne room gives us hope now. This vision of the beast being destroyed. This vision of the glorious Son of Man helps us rejoice. Suffering now, but glory later. Only one kingdom shall endure forever. And if we're in Jesus Christ, we receive this kingdom. And then we'll be home. Samuel Rutherford, a 17th century pastor, suffered greatly for the gospel. He was exiled from his church because he was preaching the gospel. He was later, in his older age, um, charged with high treason because he argued that even the monarchs were subject to God's judgment. 
He felt like an exile his whole life, and he wrote a marvelous hymn that expresses the hope of all of us who are in Christ. When he wrote, The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb in all his glory of Emmanuel's land. If we are in Christ, that's where our future is headed. To Emmanuel's land. We will receive a kingdom. And then we will be at home. More at home than we've ever been before. To which we say, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for the power and beauty and wonder of your word, for the the hope it gives us as we consider our future, the future glory that awaits us. We pray that that would strengthen us right now for present faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we want to be a grateful people for receiving this kingdom, for you being our king, for coming not to be served but to serve and to give your life for us. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would increase our gratitude for all that you are, for all that you have done, and all that you will do. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.